Today's episode is the last episode of the podcast on the shoulders of giants. But don't despair, I'm only taking a break for the summer, and then I will resume my third installment in the fall. To all my listeners, whether you're in Mountain View, California, or Houston, Texas, or overseas in the United Kingdom, Zimbabwe, Japan, or Vietnam, yes, I have a listener in Vietnam, or right here in the great state of Vermont, I wanted to say a huge thank you to all of you, and also a special thank you to the 17 guests who joined me on this journey. Your thoughtful, engaging, and active dialogue and support for all aspects of my podcast have helped create an experience unlike anything else I could have imagined. I don't know how next season's installment will measure up to the last two seasons, but I have received so many ideas and suggestions, and with the experience I've gained over the last two years, I know for a fact that it will be equally, if not more, inspiring. Thank you, all of you. And if I have seen further, and if you have seen further, it is truly by standing on the shoulders of giants. And now, on with the show. I'm Tinotenda Charles Rutanira, and this is the podcast on the shoulders of giants, where we get to chat with incredibly inspiring people who have broken the status quo or faced down adversity or taken the road less traveled and positively impacted the lives of other people. We get to hear their stories and gain knowledge and insights into how their professional and personal lives mix every day to create lessons and insights for others to follow. Because the only way to really grow is by building on previous discoveries. And only then can we truly see further by standing on the shoulders of giants. My time spent in school as a teenager was pretty grim. Not only were our classes full of boring theory, we spent most of the time memorizing stuff like Pythagoras' theorem, which I've spent the best part of 40 years trying to figure out where I could fit it into practice. Outside of a smattering of technical drawing and some home economics classes, all of which were electives, our education system was hardly practical. We could recite the Canterbury Tales, but we did not learn how to sew or weld or operate machinery or cook or change the oil in our cars or do something useful that I could use in my adult life. Compared to my parents' generation, it's clear that the domestic and creative arts education in schools has floundered over the past couple of decades. For millennials, it's even worse. It's no wonder why they're flocking to DIY websites and apps to teach them the cooking, crafting, and making skills that many of us have missed out on our youth, and which are now so important as we build homes, start businesses, and families. Think of learning at its earliest stage. A baby learns to play with blocks or by manipulating objects in three-dimensional space. It's something our human brains were hardwired to do. Learning is an active process in which people actively construct knowledge from their experience in the world. People don't get ideas, they make them. The maker movement, the common term used to describe the widespread diffusion of spaces, tools, and collaborative application of knowledge to create enterprises, 
leans heavily on the idea of constructivism and is all about putting the making back into learning. My guest today is Chris Thompson. Chris is a founding board member at Generator Makerspace. Generator provides tools and technologies, often available only in factories, schools, and universities, or at a high cost to the user, like 3D printing, laser cutters, high-end computers and software, as well as a workshop dedicated to rapid prototyping of products. It aims to be a jumping-off point for creative individuals and new small businesses to get their designs and ideas up and running. Chris, welcome to the On the Shoulders of Giants podcast. Happy to be here. So, Chris, uh, you have been involved in the visual arts pretty much all your life, from what I can tell. Can you tell me what were some of the early childhood influences that led you into this lifestyle? Oh, that's interesting. So, uh, I had a somewhat unusual childhood. Um, my father was a physicist at Princeton University, um, and although I'd always wanted to be an artist ever since I was a little kid, I was sort of surrounded by things that I didn't realize at the time, but I guess were, were fairly unusual. Uh, we had, he managed one of the supercomputers working on the, uh, the plasma physics fusion energy project at Princeton. So we had a teletype when I was a little kid oh, connected wow. to a, a, a very fancy <laughs> piece of equipment. And I thought all, all the kids had that. You know? Fancy at and, that time uh, too, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. This was back in the seventies when, when, you know, home computers didn't exist. Uh, and so in my summer job through pure nepotism, they gave, you know, all the kids of those physicists out there, uh, summer jobs working. And I got taught basic electrical design as a summer job. And I was designing very early, uh, uh, optical couplers, uh, you know, and basic circuit board design with no real experience whatsoever. But I, they just, you know, it's the sort of thing that they needed people to be able to do that. And I thought that was kind of fun because I like to draw. <laughs> so I ended up learning some basic electrical design. And so even though I, I went on um, to uh, to try to be an artist and, and I was a musician and an artist for years, uh, again and again, uh, I'd be working as an artist somewhere and, and there'd be a computer they needed to fix. I'd say, okay, well, I'm not scared of those things. So I, I would go in and fix it. Um, and uh, so I work up 20 years later and I was a CTO of a company and I had 12 engineers working for me. And... Uh, and I sort of did that moment where I said, like, wow, this isn't what I, I, I planned. I just sort of fell into it. Uh, in college, I actually studied religion uh, because I wanted to uh, have a major that, that I couldn't possibly get a job in so that I, I would be forced to, to learn how to think rather than learn a trade. Cause sort of with the assumption that, that, that my early experience uh, doing the electrical design would fall into something if I desperately needed money. But the uh, yeah, so I woke up uh, and I decided to... Um, uh, to quit my job as a CTO and become an artist full time. And that was only, well, about, um, uh, about 2006 or seven. So I ended up uh, becoming uh, an artist and quickly fell into um, working at Burlington City Arts and uh, uh, volunteered there initially. And, and then um, after a while, they asked me to be the curator for the, for the space. Uh, and because I had done so much technology before, I ended up falling into you know, what was easy for me, but very difficult for other curators, particularly contemporary art curators, which was doing technology-focused shows. Yes, yeah, so it all comes all the way back again, which is I, I ended up doing art, but my art has turned out to be all focused on technology and focused on, on the way that uh, the arts and technology interact. Wow, that's a lot to unpack and uh, very interesting stuff. So it sounds like your life was sort of 
quite all over the place with a lot of different influences. Because uh, I was also reading your, your bio, and uh, it says, Chris's artwork is inspired by data visualization, complex systems theory, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence algorithms. And I was like, what the heck does that all mean? <laughs> what does it look like? Yeah, so I got, um, ever since I was a kid, I was very interested in the idea of ecologies. Ecologies where you have a, a set of, of, you know, a sort of natural ecologies where you have a set of various independent um, organisms or entities and they have their own sort of plan and they all interact in certain ways. And sometimes the things that, the way, the way they interact and the outcomes and the way that the ecology evolves is unexpected. So I was always, ever since I was a kid, I was fascinated with ecologies. So, you know, as an artist, I used to teach art in college and I'd always say, find out what your obsessions are and dig into them. So I started looking more at that and uh, I became fascinated by this idea of creating these ecologies uh, of, of, sort of emergent properties. So um, I taught myself programming. I never actually took any courses in it, but I, I was able to sort of dive in over, over the years. Um, and uh, my art consists mostly of creating uh, software environments that are self-running. It's sort of like a video game without uh, anybody playing it. Um, and I was able to figure out how to make uh, uh, large touch uh, tables, which are actually rear projection screens that you touch and it sees where you touch and you can put objects that have little printed codes on the bottom that can recognize them. So it becomes this large sort of surface that you can interact with and I would have the um, the ecology or that environment projected on that screen that you could interact with like it was a table. And so I had a one of the last shows I did before I, I was sort of really sucked into doing the makerspace and, and uh, uh, and not able to work on my art very much anymore was a uh, it was a an environment where there were uh, thousands of flies and the flies sort of built little um, you know they they built a, an ecology and they interacted and they lived and they died and they grew and different ones had different sort of purposes and they all sort of um, simultaneously grotesque and uh, and kind of fascinating and people could interact with them they could they could you know um, move them around, change the parameters by changing some objects that sat on the table and make it squash flies and do all sorts of things that they want to do. <laughs> wow, sounds uh, interesting to say the least. <laughs> uh, so actually that's a great uh, sort of pivot into emergent media, um, which is an area which you pivoted into. Uh, so for, my, for the benefit of myself and my audience, what is emergent media and why is it important? Emergent media is just a uh, um, another way of talking about the way technology interacts with culture, and that um, sometimes it interacts in unexpected ways. And uh, I mean, if you told me that we would all be walking around with um, uh, the equivalent of a supercomputer in uh, 1970s terms, the equivalent of a supercomputer in your pocket, and that we would be fascinated with this and and, and looking at it the first thing in the morning and the last thing at night. I just would have thought you were crazy. And so our culture gets changed as technologies emerge. And, and that's something that I just think is, is uh, something we take for granted. We should be a little more critical and a little more aware of. So that's, that's what I'm interested in. But I'm also interested in this idea, and this goes back to makerspace, is that technologies can, can um, create revolutions in people's ability to to transcend normal uh, boundaries. I mean, I was very lucky when I grew up. I got to, to learn electrical 
electrical design without ever going to engineering school just because of happenstance. Um, technologies now are coming out that allow people to do things you never used to be able to do. Uh, you know, uh, I was teaching uh, artists how to use uh, Arduino microprocessors up at UVM. And they, they all learned how to do it. It was kind of crazy. Years before, you would have to have been at several years of engineering school, and all of a sudden, these very advanced uh, tools are readily available and readily usable. And same thing with advanced manufacturing, laser cutters and plasma cutters and 3D printers and um, four-axis CNC mills. All these things are, are kind of crazy science fiction technology uh, from years ago that are now in everybody's hands. And all of a sudden, there's really not the same barriers there were to being able to do things. It's really you're you're limited by your drive yeah. and uh, and and your your interest and your sort of obsessions. Yeah, that's actually something that I was uh, thinking about because um, sometimes you actually spend four years doing some sort of certification to get industry recognition, and by the time actually people are done with that certification, the the market itself or the, that skill is obsolete, you know, or has been made obsolete by, you know, these uh, supercomputers that are doing all that work that you spent all this time studying towards that even a layperson will can just hop onto a computer and have the system do everything that you just spent the best part of four years studying how to do. Or even worse, what if you do that and suddenly by the end of four years realize you don't really like doing that? <laughs> That's terrible. But rather, what if you instead you could dive right in and you could try something and figure out whether you liked it and you know and be able to evolve with it as a change? Absolutely, I'm loving the way that we're just pivoting right into some of the areas that I want to talk about. So let's talk about the the makerspace culture itself. So uh, many people might be wondering, what is a makerspace and why should they care about it? So a makerspace, in my mind, is. Um, is really a community that takes advantage of exactly the, the emergent technology effects that we were just talking about. All of a sudden, you have all of these tools that are, you know, very sophisticated, but all of a sudden very easy to use um, in comparison to the way they used to be. Um, and that allows people to be able to realize projects themselves that normally they would have had to hire somebody else to do. You take that, and at the same time, you have a moment where when I was growing up, everybody went through metal shop and wood shop. All the kids, you know, had sort of this this introduction to these, um, you know, these, these basic fabrication tools. And that's uh, because of budget cuts in schools. That's getting rarer and rarer. So all of a sudden, there are people who, um, you know, are interested because, cult you know, right now, culturally, the idea of making things yourself, and uh, uh, I guess this is probably partially due to as things get more and more automated and manufactured and things are being shipped in from China and other places that, that people are being more removed from the actual idea of, of the creation of things, people are becoming more fascinated with it. So all of a sudden we have this convergence of the tools, we have the interest in, in, in uh, the handmade again, um, and we have fewer and fewer opportunities for people to learn some of these tools. The makerspace is a perfect place for that. But really what, um, what I like to think about as the most important part of a makerspace is that it's a community. It's a, a community of people who are passionate about, you know, different technologies, different, uh, you know, the different uh, aspects of making things, and they share their skills in a selfless way that I've never really seen before. It's, it's pretty amazing 
So it's really a, a passionate group of people who like to help each other to achieve goals around making things. And so you talked about uh, the tools, uh, the interest in handmade stuff, the community. Is that what's driving this uh, makerspace culture? I think it is. I mean, partially it's social in that uh, it's a uh, it's a place to find like-minded people uh, that generate our makerspace. We have over the course of a year about 400 members, and you know, it's if you're um, if you are really into something obscure, whether it's uh, you know the Internet of Things, drone flying, um, or you know, or even blacksmithing and um, art knife making you're going to find people who are just as passionate about these somewhat obscure um, areas here and you can hang out and you can um, do them as a group. And that's, so there's definitely a social aspect uh, to it as well um, that I think is uh, sometimes people miss. It's not just, the tools are just an excuse for getting everybody here and getting together and doing things. Fun. So so who are these quote unquote makers? Wow. We have an incredible variety of people. Um, our makers tend to be, uh, we have about a third of the folks here are entrepreneurs, um, and we're talking super early stage entrepreneurs, people who are just sort of doing their first prototypes, sort of throwing things against the wall, saying what sticks. Um, we have about a third are artists. Um, we're kind of an unusual makerspace in that uh, since my, my background and the background of all of the board members is coming from the art and technology community, um, we have a lot of artists here. And the artists are people who are interested in using advanced fabrication tools and technology in their art. Um, and or sometimes just sort of uh, classic hand tools that are it's, it's expensive to put together a metal shop, for example. And then about a third of our other members are educators. We have um, lots of folks. Uh, there's a, a strong movement in the school systems to teach science, technology, engineering, and math through hands-on projects because it's proven um, without a doubt that the best educational environment is one of, of self-guided, hands-on uh, actual projects. And so um, we have a lot of teachers who are here who are either um, teachers who are still teaching or teachers who are starting their own businesses uh, that are helping other teachers learn how to do science, technology, engineering, and math through hands-on projects. And uh, and so th- that's sort of the broad range. There are people who are also just into fun stuff. They're into coming in and, and they're passionate about tinkering in some sort of area um, or interested in just exploring some sort of place where you need a specialized set of tools or skills to do it. Um, at any one time, our, the age range is very broad here. We have uh, uh, about a hundred of our, our members at any one time are usually college students. We have um, very close relationships with uh, Champlain and uh, uh, and Champlain College and, and the University of Vermont, um, and then otherwise the age range is, is all the way from eighteen to you know eighty. So I like the, the the word tinkerer. It sounds like if you are a tinkerer, you'll probably enjoy uh, being in the space. Oh yes, I mean it's you know there's this always this tradition of people who'd be out in their garage, you know. Uh, doing some sort of uh, hands-on project or invention, sort of tinkering away at something. And here you can do that with uh, you know a half million dollars worth of equipment and, and a community of other people who are just as obsessed with the same strange little areas that you're you're obsessed with. And that's, that's a, a pretty a pretty wonderful position to be in. 
Right. So uh, let's talk specifically about Generator Makerspace. Um, so how did you get involved in the Makerspace and how was it founded? So Generator was founded uh, when I was at Burlington City Arts and I was curating. I started doing lots of shows, as I mentioned before, around art and technology. And uh, the board members and I were surprised by the fact that they were very, very popular. I just thought they were, you know, the technology is, is sort of the waters in which we all swim these days. So uh, I emphasized what I thought was important culturally. Uh, and uh, so I was very surprised that these shows were usually packed, you know, and people were fascinated by them. And uh, so uh, a few of the board members and I got together and uh, we proposed making an art and technology space. And this was before the maker movement had really sort of taken off on the East Coast. So this was really uh, originally what I was noting was that a lot of artists were interested in working in technology as a, as a medium, but they didn't have the skill sets. And so the idea is to create a space that would actually teach artists what they needed to learn in order to be able to do uh, technology-driven art. So it was meant to be just a sort of a small little space that we would that we'd, you know, have some shows and uh, set out with um, uh, Michael Metz, who's one of our board members, and Dan Harvey, who was at the time the board president over um, BCA. And we got together a group of board members um, who are also really interested folks from Champlain College, from UVM, uh, people in the industry, uh, just a, just incredibly strong and passionate board, and started working on this. And finally, in, uh, in 2014, I believe it was, we, um, we opened the doors for the first time at a sort of a pop-up space down in the basement of Memorial Auditorium in, uh, in Burlington, right down in the, the middle of downtown. Uh, and a thousand people showed up <laughs> to our opening pop-up. And we thought, wow. we, we realized, oh, there's something going on here. <laughs> so what was supposed to be this little teeny space that was focused on art and technology really evolved into being um, a much larger uh, uh, institution with, you know, a much larger amount of space. So now we have about 8,500 square feet and lots of different, uh, we have about over 30 different other nonprofit community partners where we do lots of programming and, and, and lots of, uh, uh, lots of events. And so, yeah, it's become this very, you know, a much more substantial thing, but it was originally focused on art and technology and now it's become much broader. Got it. And so what types of equipment would or do you have in the generator? So generator has, um, we have, uh, I guess, seven different shops right now. We have um, a digital prototyping shop, and that has laser cutters. Uh, our laser cutters are, are by far our most popular piece of equipment. In fact, I've got it in my budget to buy a second one now because there's um, often uh, lines waiting for it. We have 3D printers, a number of them from high-end engineering 3D printers uh, down to sort of... Uh, uh, more consumer-grade ones that we lend out to the public schools. Uh, we have CNC mills. So these are mills that are driven by 3D software. If you are uh, creating an object to print out to a 3D printer, you create it in a, a 3D piece of software like SolidWorks or Fusion 360. And But you can send that same piece of uh, that same file of that 3D object you created to a CNC mill, and it will cut out of a, um, a solid block material what you uh, you've designed, just like a 3D printer will sort of add on the material, sort of like a, a, a cake decorator. Then we've got a full electronics studio. Um, 
and lab, and that's a very active area where we've got uh, uh, microprocessors like uh, Arduinos and Raspberry Pis and things like that, as well as uh, lots of other um, materials and equipment for doing electronics. We have a full jewelry area uh, and a very strong active group around that. Uh, we actually have a, uh, uh, a VR, a virtual reality and augmented reality lab, and we're actually expanding that this summer. Uh, there's a lot of interest in that and launching a uh, sort of mini incubator around uh, helping VR, AR companies start. Wow. Uh, then we we have a, uh, a full uh, wood shop, and we have a full machine shop and a metal shop. Uh, and the, um, the our latest thing that's taking off is uh, uh, is blacksmithing and knife making is really popular. Sort of art knives. I so like that. I love the fact that we've got we've got the people pounding away, you know, down in, in the blacksmith shop, and the people, um, you know, in the AR VR lab um, working on their things. Futuristic wonderful. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It's sort of, that's the classic makerspace. It's you know somewhere between three thousand year old technology and twenty first century technology, where they meet kind of a magic. Exactly. Magic my brain is going to Game of Thrones in the blacksmithing world, and then going to you know like uh, you know some space uh, show, you know, for all the virtual reality stuff. Yeah, it's great. We just actually started. We now have the first. We're about to open the first um, permanent drone racing course in the U.S. Uh, no drones, way. particularly many, yeah, particularly many miniature drones. Um, the ones that you wear a VR headset in order to control, which are absolutely wild, uh, uh, are very popular out here. People, you know, you can buy the kits or you can actually build them from scratch. Uh, and uh, there's a strong group of users around that. And so, uh, so yeah, so they're, that's going to launch next month. And we're really excited about that. The, the uh, Seeing them race is, is crazy. It's wow. So fun. people are actually building from scratch these virtual reality controllers. In your space, yeah, the uh, the ones for the the they're, they're, uh, building the uh, the actual little drones from scratch and then purchasing the the, the headset oh. controllers. Wow, that's unbelievable! So, just for the sake of uh, my listeners who might not really get some of this, so give me some examples. Say, with particularly, I've heard a lot about laser cutters as well as three D printers. Like, what are the sort of stuff that you can do with these uh, pieces of of equipment? So uh, um, a laser cutter is a very versatile piece of equipment. Essentially, you can create a, 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 a file in a program like Adobe Illustrator or Corel Draw, which is basically just a, a, a line art file. Um, and uh, you can send that file to a laser cutter, and it will either cut out of a material or engrave whatever that, that, that drawing that you've made um, in your, your desktop uh, drawing pro um, program. So you can cut acrylic plastic, you can cut wood, you can cut leather, you can cut uh, rubber, you can cut any number of of, of, uh, uh, of materials like that. And then you can engrave everything from glass uh, to stone to uh, metal. Uh, so it's, you know, the wonderful thing about it is you, you take a piece of software that so many people know and it's very easy to access, like, you know, like these desktop drawing software. Uh, and within two hours after taking a course, you can actually be producing things that you can sell. Uh, it's super accessible. Um, then 3D printers, on the other hand, uh, 3D printers are um, devices that take a, um, 
a digital file, uh, a 3D model that you've created in a modeling a piece of modeling software, and then they actually um, build that by uh, by extruding layers of plastic, sort of like a uh, uh, you're decorating a cake or you're uh, like a, a glue gun, uh, an automated glue gun. It sort of builds them up. And uh, and you can pretty much anything that you can imagine on a 3D printer you you can make. We have a 3D printer that has two types of material that it extrudes. One is a support material uh, that allows you to make very complex things like gears with inside of gears. And then you, you um, drop that uh, that model once it's done in a, a, a caustic bath, and it eats away the support material, and then it leaves just the nylon plastic. Uh, so you can have a, have to create very complex things that you really couldn't manufacture in any other way. So it's a pretty exciting technology. Wow. So, so the the end product is plastic, or what is it made out of? Well, for a three D printer, um, the end product is typically plastic. There are lots of different plastics. But we have a new three D printer, which makes it much more complicated <laughs> because <laughs> it actually can um, extrude plastic mixed with carbon fiber. Um, a plastic that's mixed with wood pulp, um, a rubberized plastic. I mean, it's actually, um, it can, uh, there's so many different things you can actually make with a 3D printer now, so many different materials. It's, it's, it's actually very versatile at this point. Wow. It, it sounds to me like this stuff is very expensive. You know, the laser printers, 3D printers, you've got the jewelry stuff that you talked about, the woodworking, metal stuff. You guys are 501. 3C, so you're a nonprofit. So how are you making enough money to be able to to afford all of this really cool equipment? Yeah, so we are, I like to think of us as a social impact nonprofit. Our goal here is to have as much positive impact on our community as we possibly can. So we actually, we rely on, at this point where uh, our members pay about half of what it really costs to be here as a member. Uh, and we go out and rely on grants and philanthropy for the rest. And we have a, a passionate group of people who support us. Uh, and, uh, and, and so our idea is that when you're supporting very early stage entrepreneurs or artists, they can't pay what it really costs to, to run this equipment. But in right. the long term, helping them start companies, helping them, you know, develop, uh, uh, you know, successful practices, you know, is such a boon to the community and in the long term will pay back. So years from now, we'll remind the successful companies where they started and see if they can fund <laughs> our, our scholarship fund as well. <laughs> um, but yeah, and we do lots of outreach. We do, uh, part of what we raise money for is projects that are going to um, reach beyond our members. So for example, we had a, a jumpstart, uh, which was our entrepreneurship program. And that program, we actually um, brought in some of the, the best known people in um, in uh, teaching the skills of how to successfully start a company and brought them in and had a free lecture series around that. And then we selected um, out of the 360 some uh, young or emerging entrepreneurs who participated, we actually selected the best four ideas and, um, and did an incubator where we paid them to actually grow their company and gave them studio space, gave them a stipend, hooked them up with mentors and gave them classes. Um, and so, you know, that's an example of, of, we have many programs like that where we go out into the community, try to involve the community uh, in, 
and sort of the power of, of, of a platform like Generator or Makerspace is to actually help people start companies, to help people, um, you know, affect change in their community. I see. So what are some of the showcase projects and businesses that uh, have come out of uh, Generator? We have a bunch of them. Wow. So we've had about um, more than 12 companies have, have um, we call it graduating, <laughs> which is when they become successful enough that they're hogging the machines and, and, and taking up too much space <laughs> and say, congratulations, you've graduated. Yeah, now you're going to leave. <laughs> <laughs> and which is a very positive thing, but we miss them because they usually are, you know, some of our best members and, Absolutely. and people that we're really close to. Um, so a number of them have, have um, some examples are, uh, uh, there's a company called um, Pinbox 3000 where that started uh, as a generator where they were um, creating cardboard pinball machines. And originally when they came here, they were cutting them out with, uh, with exacto knives. And we, we showed them how to use the laser cutter. And all of a sudden, they could produce many more of these at a time. And they were getting started. We raised some money to send them down to the uh, president, President's Maker Fair in Washington. President Obama uh, put on a Maker Fair at the White House. And they actually won first prize. And the no good way. news was they won first prize. Yes. The bad news was they got an immediate order for six thousand. <laughs> so they had to go from <laughs> from you know, you know, uh, uh, cutting them out by hand to laser cutting and all of a sudden they have to ramp up their production. And the nice thing is we have lots of people who have lots of industry experience who are associated with generators, so they were able to help them do that. And they are now a flourishing company. Another group, uh, Matt and Eric Design. Uh, who are graduates of, of uh, Generator, um, who are product design experts, got together with another graduate generator, uh, Allison Magician, and they actually got together and um, have created a new product that's about to be launched, which is a um, olfactory VR, which is um, Allison Magician is a company that makes um, fragrances that you spray over cocktails. Um, it's a sort of a high-end yep, high um, uh, treatment mix. Yeah, mm-hmm. and uh, and Matt and Eric can build pretty much anything. So they got together and created a VR setup that actually has um, smells associated with it. And they've raised um, a fair amount of startup, and they're off and going. Uh, even in the uh, our most recent group of uh, uh, the Jumpstart group, we had um, a Courtney Record who makes these fantastic um, objects of jewelry uh, that use uh, topographic data from famous uh, places. So, uh, for example, if you hike um, a famous mountain, she actually has jewelry that is, uh, is a topographic map of that mountain. I see. That is fascinating. So how do people get access and participate in all of this? Because I'm sure, you know, there's probably some light bulbs going on in people's heads right now. Yeah, so... Um, we're very accessible. You just, you can, um, the, the way I recommend people get involved is they, they look at the classes we have online and they pick a class that they're interested in, um, and sign up for it. You can, I don't have to be a member to take a class. And we have all sorts of things from, um, from, uh, 3D printing through virtual reality, um, software, uh, to, uh, to make knife making and, uh, uh, traditional uh, wooden box making. So all sorts of different things. Uh, a lot of people start with a laser cutter. It's a very easy, accessible place to start. It's only a, a two-hour course and they're up and going. But take a course, and if you like it, then you uh, can sign up to become a member. And the, the membership is, we, as I said, we keep it artificially cheap. Uh, and uh, and as a member, you can actually be, um, you can use the space for um, uh, from 
10 in the morning to 9 at night, seven days a week. So 77 hours a week. So it's a, it's a great opportunity. And we love people. You know, if they get excited about it, the best thing on earth they could do is start a company here. And we would love to, you know, have people hanging out all the time using the tools. Um, and the nice thing about it also is, is that, uh, we don't actually charge for people to use the tools once they've, once they've gotten certified in their class that they know how to use them safely. They can just sign up for them, use them uh, as much as they like. So I always have, um, you know, a question that relates to my 12 year old daughter. Uh, sorry, she's not 13. Um, what is the plan to bring K through 12 kids into your space? Because, you know, I know that with my, the, education system that I grew up with, even though it wasn't an American education system, it kind of reflects a lot of the shortcomings of the system where we're taught a lot of theory and not a lot of practical stuff. So um, how are you bringing these kids into your space and getting them jazz about what is possible? So we're actually working on a new program right now that's going to launch in the fall that we're really excited about. Um, it's uh, called Design Lab. and uh, and the idea of Design Lab um, is that uh, it's actually interesting. In Vermont, there's, there was legislation passed a couple of years ago called Act 77. And Act 77 said that um, all kids are um, deserve to have personalized learning plans. In other words, they, they, they deserve to have sort of no longer just sitting in the classroom doing exactly the same thing everybody else is doing. Everybody should be learning in their own way and taking advantage of their own strengths and their own interests and passions. Um, and one part of that uh, Act 77 was this idea of flexible pathways, which is that students should actually get out of the school and they should actually have interactions with with real professionals doing real work, um, you know, whether it's an internship or an apprenticeship or, you know, any sort of other way that they can actually work with people who are out actually doing things. And Generator, in our mind, is sort of perfect for this because we have hundreds of members who are um, actually, you know, doing this sort of um, science, technology, engineering, and math, creative, and art-based careers, and they're doing entrepreneurship where they're, they're sort of creating, you know, charting their own path. So we've created this uh, program that's actually working with schools, and uh, the idea is uh, students who are in uh, grades 7 through 12 uh, we'll have the opportunity for them to come in and do workshops with maker professionals, entrepreneurs, actually in the space here, um, combined with um, people going into the classrooms and working on projects where they actually create their own collaborative, uh, collaboratively as, uh, create their own uh, maker-based projects, and preferably ones that actually are going to tackle real-world community issues so the students can work with the, uh, uh, the entrepreneurs to, uh, to create things that, that would actually have real impact. I see. That's cool. So with, uh, you know, here's a million dollar question for you. With X77 in mind, how would you redesign uh, how the schools can take advantage of the current understanding of the maker environment? Well, we've been involved that for, for a while now. Uh, we have something called Maker in the Classroom, where actually 97% of, uh, of Burlington Regional School um, uh, middle schoolers go through our, our Maker in the Classroom uh, program, which is a collaboration with a bunch of fantastic uh, teachers. And we've been working with them to integrate making and integrate um, hands-on projects into the classroom for a while. Uh, and we 
we go out and raise money and help them develop programming and, and uh, hands-on projects and then fund the materials for those projects. That's wonderful. So, yeah, it, it, it's been, it's been a, a big success, and, and we're very excited about it. And this and Design Lab that I was just describing is sort of an extension of that, which is the idea of, okay, now that we've got all, all the, the kids going to the, the local schools are actually interacting with this um, type of programming, how do we get them to actually take that next step and have real authentic interactions with professionals who might be going about their career path in a very different way than you're standardly taught? I mean, typically now people assume that you go to school, you go to college, and you get out and you go to work for a company. And that's really just not the way it is anymore. Um, a lot of people are starting their own businesses. A lot of people, um, you know, there are some people that college might not actually be right for, but are very smart. They're just more focused on hands-on sort of production. So they can actually Absolutely. come and generate and learn skill sets that they can actually either start their own businesses or go do very sophisticated advanced um, manufacturing jobs without actually going to college. So looking into your crystal ball, what does the future look like? Oh, that's a good one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I um, college. You know, I'm I'm sort of interested in this whole idea of where colleges are going right now, and it's a it's a a, a model that that is it's sort of under a certain amount of pressure at this moment. Um, and so I do see education wise much more um, a much more fluid sort of environment where different people learn in different ways. And some people, the, the classrooms are going to be fantastic and they're going to uh, learn certain things very, very easily in, in that sort of uh, uh, didactic sort of environment. But they're, you know, a much more powerful way of learning and then actually creating careers. There's this much more fluid aspects of going out and discovering what you're passionate about, having resources to explore those things, having mentors to help you explore those things, and then creating your own um, business path, life path. I mean, I guess it's a lot like what I've done, which is I, I never really got a real job in this. You know, I didn't go to study engineering, then got a job in engineering. I sort of explored the things I was passionate about, and when I got excited about something, I would uh, sort of work my way into a job, talk my way into a job doing that, uh, and uh, and I found that much more satisfying. Uh, and I was able to change my mind and do different things at different times. And I think that. Uh, that's a, a much more viable uh, path for the future, especially when the technologies that we're working with um, give you so much flexibility. It's, it's, I, I think it's a very positive sort of empowering moment. Um, at the same time, you know, uh, where traditional sort of rote jobs are becoming fewer and fewer, I think that we need to empower people more like that because it's, you know, people are going to be changing jobs and their jobs might no excuse me, their jobs might no longer exist. Um, for their entire lifetimes. So they've got to be able to be fluid like that. Yeah, yeah. I'm actually thinking back to, you know, maybe this is going back into the days of apprenticeships and stuff. Uh, sounds like that's sort of where we're headed back into. Yeah, we have, there's a wonderful program. Uh, Jim Shields is one of our members. He, he runs uh, the Big Picture Learning, which works out of um, South Burlington High School. And their idea, he has this great quote, which is that, People um, call classrooms traditional learning. He says, no, that's not traditional learning. That, that's contemporary learning. Apprenticeships are traditional learning. People have been doing teaching one-on-one -on -one skill transfer for hundreds if not thousands of years. And that's the way that people learn best. 
Um, and I'm fascinated by that idea uh, that that the uh, the the way that we've been uh, you know teaching our our students recently is very different than the way that people have sort of uh, have just evolved to learn best. And so the opportunity of having a way to sort of get back a little bit towards uh, towards a, a, a way where there's more one-on-one skill transfer uh, by mentors and by uh, by peers is, I think, a very powerful way of going. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more there. Um, so, Chris, in closing, I'm going to ask you a question that I ask all of my guests. If you could travel back in time and have a conversation with a younger version of yourself, what words of wisdom would you say to yourself? Hmm. Let me take a second here. <laughs> okay. So what um, what I would say is uh, it's really important to follow your passions and 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 really you want to figure out what what you are really curious about and what really drives you and dig deeply into that. Um, you know, there are moments in my life where where people you know told me there are certain you know that there are certain areas of careers that were really out of bounds and and that you know were very difficult to achieve and what I discovered was pretty much anything you set your mind to do um, if you're passionate about it and you and you you uh, um, and you don't you don't have to follow the rules exactly um, if everybody tells you to go in the front door you should see if there's a back door to get in most of my successes in the long term uh, were because I went about entering careers in a non-standard way, and that worked out just fine. So uh, I'd probably say my advice would be, you know, figure out what you're passionate about and go do it, and don't necessarily go in the front door. Find a back door to get into the, the careers and areas that interest you. Um, and if you don't feel like going to four years of, of engineering school, don't. Just go in and start doing the projects and do what makes you uh, what you're passionate about. And, uh, and it'll all work out in the long run. I love that. So, Chris, would you like to share how uh, my audience can learn more about you and the Generator Makerspace? Yeah, absolutely. So um, uh, you can go to our website. We're at um, generatorvt.com. And uh, the, uh, uh, on our website, uh, lots of information about the space. You can sign up for a tour. I give tours a couple times a week and love to, to show people around. Uh, and if you're interested in um, in a class, there's you can sign up online. Watch out also for um, all of our free outreach. We have over 200 different events over the year that are all free. You can come in and participate, uh, and that's another great way of of getting to know Generator and, and getting to know the community here. Fantastic. So, Chris, uh, thank you so much for your time and for your insights. Uh, this interview has been really, really ex- inspiring and exciting. Um, I feel like I could talk about this kind of thing uh, all day. Um, I find it incredibly interesting that uh, there's this mashing together of traditionally siloed areas like art, technology, music, film, science. And, you know, we're living in a unique time when we can have this incredible opportunity to unleash our creativity more than ever before and really connect our learning to solve uh, real world problems, as you said earlier. And even from this tiny state of Vermont, you know, this network of educators, artists, technologists, collaborators, and just ordinary people off the street have this opportunity to have a profound impact on the direction 
of the rest of the country in terms of ideas and the course of innovation. So it's really exciting stuff, Chris, and I commend you guys for what you're doing and uh, for sharing the space, the technologies, the equipment, and everything else uh, that goes with it with uh, the people of Burlington and Vermont. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Chris. And with that, we will wrap up the show. 